What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Did you know that 40% of ballots are being rejected in Houston? There's actually a story within that story. I'll be sharing that with you. But I wanted to give you the lineup for the day also. Bishop William Barber is going to be with us. He's the pastor of the Greenleaf Christian Church, senior lecturer at the Repairs of the Breach, architect of the Forward Together Moral Movement. And we'll be talking with him about that. And also I want to get into fear is the point, the new GOP strategy. We'll talk about that in a minute too. But I want to start out with the rant that uh, I posted this morning over at HartmanReport.com, which is, by the way, free and no ads. The headline is, all the GOP has left is racism, and that's a lie too. And uh, in the 2020 election, you know, the Republican, this last election, right, the Republicans didn't even publish a party platform. Mitch McConnell gave a speech to a group of uh, fundraisers, uh, you know, fat Republican fat cats. There was a reporter there from Axios who said that McConnell said, you know, one of the donors asked him, what are you going to run on? We know what you're opposed to. What are you going to run on? What is the positive message that Republicans are bringing Americans this year? And McConnell replied, Republicans should be 100 percent focused on Democrats and all the terrible things they're doing to this country. And then when he was pressed, you know, well, won't you tell us at least what you're going to do? And McConnell said words to the effect of, well, when we get power again, we'll let you know. Right. So, you know, this is like a bizarre parody of Seinfeld. I mean, you know, the, the show that was about nothing. Now the Republican Party's about nothing. Nothing about getting the lead out of our water supply or the child brain damaging pesticides out of our food. Nothing about strengthening Social Security or expanding Medicare to include glasses or hearing or teeth. Nothing about helping young families make it through those first tough five years with something like low-cost pre-K. Nothing about fixing the student debt crisis, this crippling 45 million Americans. Um, nothing, about, uh, nothing about making health care or pharmaceuticals more available and affordable. Nothing about cleaning up our environment or stopping global warming. Nothing about turning our public schools back into the world's finest. I was, a little, I was in second grade, as I recall, maybe third, when, when Sputnik went up. 
and all of America held its breath for a minute as this Russian or the Soviet satellite was going bing, bing, but we watched it go through the sky. You could see it at night. And Eisenhower said, holy cow, we've got to raise a generation of scientists and threw all kinds of money into our public schools. I was one of the beneficiaries of that. I was put in this advanced education program. And, uh, you know, and, to, and it was great. We had the best schools in the world from the 1950s until the mid-1980s when Reagan's uh, Secretary of Education, Bill Bennett, took a meat axe to that program. Nothing about giving working people better pay, raising the minimum wage, strengthening workplace protections. You know, the Republicans said nothing about this, nothing about paid sick leave, nothing about family leave, nothing about rebuilding America's infrastructure that's been crumbling since Reagan's supply side funding cuts back in the 80s. Nothing about getting high, uh, high speed, low cost broadband into the homes of every American family to make America competitive and help with education. Nothing about taking on the corruption of politics by the dark money that the Supreme Court authorized with Citizens United. Nothing about making voting safe or easy or secure for every American. These are, by the way, all things that the citizens, or nearly all things that the citizens of every other developed democracy in the world take for granted. And the Republican Party addresses none of them. But there is one thing that the GOP is holding tight to their chest. They are, this is, this is what we love. They are giving it the biggest bear hug ever. And that is their belief in white racial superiority. Racism has been used to justify centuries of slavery. It was used to, it was relabeled scientific racism in the 19th century and used to promote withholding medical care from black people. I wrote a book about, the first third of my book, The Hidden History of American Healthcare, is all about the, the story of Frederick Hoffman, who came to the United States in the 1880s or 1890s and uh, became the vice president of the Prudential Insurance Company and fought Teddy Roosevelt's effort to bring us single-payer health care, Franklin Roosevelt's efforts to bring us single-payer health care, fought it tooth and nail and succeeded. And his rationale, black people shouldn't have health care because they're inferior and they will all die out if we just withhold health care. Honest to God, that was the argument he made and it was the argument that America bought for 50 years. Racism has been, been used to... Uh, uh, it openly used by politicians to promote, you know, this whole idea of scientific racism uh, to maintain legal racial segregation right up until the 1960s. Racism explains the Republican Party's embrace of the number two guy in the Republican House caucus, Steve Scalise, who famously said, I'm David Duke without the baggage. Racism explains Reagan's education secretary, Bill Bennett, saying, if your sole purpose was to reduce crime, you could abort every black baby in this country and your crime rate would go down. Racism explains Republican defense of Confederate flags, statues, and names on military bases, and their supporters waving that traitorous flag while assaulting our democracy on January 6th at the U.S. Capitol. Racism explains Republican support for Trump banning immigration from bleephole countries and how his campaign kickoff speech talking about Mexicans being rapists and murderers cemented his place in the Republican Party's primary. Racism explains why, why uh, Republican appointees on the Supreme Court were so enthusiastic to gut the voting rights bill twice. Racism explains why the states that most supported Trump were also the states where the largest percentage of white citizens claim racial discrimination is a thing of the past or is now directed at white people.
Racism also explains their Republican hysteria about quotas or their love of race neutrality or their constant complaining about what they call reverse discrimination. Racism describes their love of white supremacist militia and their embrace of both Nazi and Confederate iconography. Logos, you know. Racism explains why they're working so hard to prevent people from voting in large, largely black cities like, or, or Hispanic like uh, Atlanta, Houston, and Dallas. Racism explains why around, quote, around 8 in 10 Republicans, compared with 40% of independents and 17% of Democrats, believe the killings of African Americans by police are isolated incidents. Racism is why Newsweek would report, quote, about half of white registered Republican voters in southern states say more attention needs to be given to discrimination against white people. Racism explains why one after another Republican-controlled states are trying to end the teaching of racial, racial history in America in our public schools, the whole CRT hysteria. And racism explains Tucker Carlson's and the Klan's great replacement theory. And that race, racism not only works for them politically, but it's now being pushed on a whole new generation. There's these websites out there, are all kinds of them. The, the, the one that inspired Dylan Roof, the guy who, who uh, murdered nine people at the Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in downtown Charleston, South Carolina back in the day, was the Council of Conservative Christians, or citizens, excuse me, which the Southern Poverty Law Center calls a white supremacist group. Republicans are constantly going to and giving speeches at the CCC, the Council of, Con uh, Council of Conservative Christians. Most recently, Mississippi Republican Senator Roger Wicker. Dylan Roof, in his manifesto, wrote, there were pages upon pages on the CCC website of these brutal black-on-white murders. I was in disbelief. At this moment, I realized that something was very wrong. This was his conversion experience, seeing this. And now the CCC has become the largest white supremacist group in the nation, according to The Atlantic. And, quote, CCC President Earl Holt III has donated some $65,000 to candidates in recent years, including GOP presidential hopefuls Ted Cruz, Rand Paul, and Rick Santorum. Holt's contribution reads like a list of who's, uh, like a who, who's who of conservative candidates in recent years. Before Dylan Roof murdered those nine people at Emanuel African Methodist Church, he proclaimed that black people have lower IQs, lower impulse control, and high levels, higher levels of testosterone. This brutally racist and demonstrably wrong sentiment or belief is not just one demented white guy, Dylan Roof. This is a core belief across the entire white base of the GOP and, or not the entire, but much of the base of the, of the, of the white base of the GOP and across the militia movement. Groups that are increasingly just melding together. It's, it's literally this, this whole scientific racism thing is repeated today on millions of websites and social media groups. In my years on this planet, and there's been a, seven decades on this planet, I've heard that lie over and over again. It's been, you know, not so much in the last decade or so. But certainly when I was younger, I used to hear it, particularly when we lived in Atlanta. I would hear it from people, from customers of my business. I, yeah, it's just, it's incredible. It's there. The, re, the simple reality is that differences in skin color, hair color, or facial features have absolutely nothing to do with intellect or any other dimension of our shared humanity. We are all 
people under our skin. But they still, they're still using this thing as a justification for segregation and redlining. The bell curve, remember that book? That was a big deal. I think it was in the 90s. All the Republicans were embracing it. That's been completely debunked, but his author is still praised by Republican politicians like Rand Paul, Jeb Bush, and Paul Ryan. The bottom line here is that white supremacy being promoted as pseudoscience, as it is right now on literally millions of websites across all across the world, but certainly in the United States, is a lie. And the racist politics that flow from it are a poison in the bloodstream of our republic. It is literally killing us. It is tearing us apart. It is destroying our republic. And we need to wake the hell up from this 400-year-old lie and say, no, we are all people here. We are all people here. In just a moment, I got to tell you about this. Fear is the point for the GOP, too. Randy in Ottawa, Iowa. Hey, Randy, what's up? Tom, you brought up Mitch McConnell in your opening. Yeah, and, uh, did I ever. Did you see his most recent soundbite? No. The one about how President Biden should act aggressively and get the sanctions going before Russia invade Ukraine? Did you see that? Wait a minute. He, Mitch McConnell is saying that we should pre-sanction Russia so they will have nothing to lose when they invade Ukraine. Is that what you're telling me, uh, Randy? He, he, yes, sir. It yes, seems, sir. That and seems completely backwards. Well, the thing is, is that, see, if you put it into context, there was something else in the news again the, about the uh, loss of jobs from the aluminum guy. Now, that wasn't Pasca. That was a different oligarch that that got the sanctions lifted off of him, that McConnell got the right, sanctions so they could lifted build a, they could build a factory in, in Kentucky that never got, or, yeah, Kentucky that never right. got. Right. And then they pulled out after the election. Well, they just pulled out of it finally. I just heard it again in the news about three weeks ago or two weeks ago. So there was it was still in the air until recently, and now it's not, and it's done, and the sanctions got lifted. McConnell got burnt by his Russian buddy, and now here he comes out like, you know, all right, but it's time to shape foreign policy around my personal disappointments because, you know. I think it's a sabotage attempt, Randy. If, if what you're telling me is true, and I'm, I, yeah, I've, you've always been straight with me in the past, so I'll believe it for the moment. Yeah. It's sort of like, you know, the, the bully comes up to you and you say, you know, if you hassle me, I've got a weapon in my pocket and I'm going to use it against you. And uh, the bully, bully stands there for a minute, and then you pull out the, the, the gun and you shoot him. I mean, you know, it's I, you know, how to. Or, I you, think you're right that McConnell would sabotage Russia and the United States foreign well, policy. That's my point. He's, he's sabotaging America. If we use right. sanctions, which is our threat, we're telling Putin, if you do this, we're going to sanction you. If we impose those sanctions before Putin does anything, we've, we've just. You know, this is the opposite of keeping powder dry. Yep, it is. Uh, could I raise another Ukraine issue? Yeah. If you think about it in the long, the long game, how Putin interfered in our elections, how how Manafort and Putin and these oligarchs interfered in that election and got Trump in, and now that he's out, there's a moment in there where all of Putin's plans and everything he'd done 
to undermine American democracy and divide us, that his his window's closing on making that move on Ukraine. Yeah. See, if Trump would have won and they would have continued to divide Europe and the United States, I, want to, I forgot the name of it, uh, the military alliance. Right. NATO. Right, NATO. If he had divided NATO and Trump was still there, he would he would march right. I think he would have marched right through. Oh, Ukraine I think and so. No and, and I think I think Trump, and, if Trump had gotten reelected, he would have welcomed him. I think, though, that, right. you know, uh, I think Putin's going to lose big on this because, number one, he has strengthened NATO. He has strengthened the EU. He has strengthened yep. the resolve of people in Ukraine. He has heightened yep, Ukrainian nationalism. The one thing that I that I think is probably going to be his move is to try and take the Donbass, to try and take eastern Ukraine. He's like nibbling away. But I could be wrong on that, too. We'll see. Randy, thanks for the call. We'll be right back. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back. So to the uh, fear is the point. This is a remarkable admission. Tim Miller is a former Republican operative down in Florida. In fact, he worked once for the RNC. And he's talking about this new law that Ron DeSantis and the Republicans in Florida are pushing could sign any day. People are referring to it as the don't say gay law. The law says, quote, a school district may not encourage classroom discussion about sexual orientation or gender identity in primary grade levels or, or in a manner that's not age appropriate or developmentally appropriate for students. So what Tim Miller is saying is basically you're banning teachers from talking about a, a normal part of humanity. 
there are gay people among us. There are LGBTQ people among us. There are people among us who, who you know, who as a natural part of who they are, well, the example he gives, he says this could be used both to keep LGBTQ people in the closet and to keep teachers in the closet. He said, quote, let's say a teacher asked their students to make a valentine, and the sample he gave was the card that he made for his husband. Is that a violation? Or what if a student asked to draw a picture of their two moms? How about if she asked to make her valentine for uh, Mirabel Madrigal? Forgive my cultural ignorance, but I'm not sure who that is, but I'm assuming an LGBTQ person. Uh, the real nightmare, he says, is the, in, the enforcement mechanism that would allow individual parents to sue schools. There's a bounty provision in this thing, basically. And uh, he says that all, uh, these hypotheticals all hinge on whether a crazy-ass parent of another student sees the Valentine or family tree or pulse book and decides to target the school. He said that it, all of this is designed to create an atmosphere of paranoia where teachers fear broaching any forbidden topics for fear of being sued by angry parents. And then the punctuation mark from Troy Miller, former Republican operative who is talking about this don't say gay law that they are pushing down down in Florida. And I guarantee you, by the way, if it passes in Florida, it'll be in 20 other states within a year. He said, the fear is the point. It's all about making public school teachers and anybody else in the school afraid. Fear is all I gotta sell. You know, my first, my, the, first, the first rant I just did, fear of, of black people, brown people, Asian people, Native Americans, it's fear. This is the Republican selling point. And the guy's name is Tim Miller, not Troy Miller. Apologies. Are the, are the Republicans going to get away with this? Is it going to work for them? On the line with us is our old friend Bishop William J. Barber II. He's the pastor of Greenleaf Christian Church, Disciples of Christ in Goldsboro, North Carolina. He's the president and senior lecturer at Repairers of the Breach, and he's the architect of the Forward Together Moral Movement, the website breachrepairers.org. Uh, you can tweet him at Rev. Dr. R E V D R Barber or at B Repairers. Uh, Dr. Barber, welcome back to the program. And, and, and thanks so much for joining us. Uh, first of all, did I get the, the uh, website correct on, on, in my introduction here? Yes, it's www.breachrepairs.org. Or now you know, with me being co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, people can also go to www.poorpeoplescampaign.org. And Tom, it's good to be back on your show. Well, thank you. It's always nice talking with you. You've got this mobilization tour that, if I have my details right, kicked off just a couple days ago on Valentine's Day and is going to culminate in D.C. on June 18th. Do I have that right? And Give us the details. You, you got it right. We kicked it off on Love Day, on Valentine's Day in Alabama, Georgia, and uh, Florida, and Mississippi, you know, one-third of all poor people live in the South, poor, low-wealth people. One-third of all poor, low-wealth white people live in the South. And we have in this country 140 million poor, low-wealth people before COVID. Now, wow. think about that. 43% of the nation, 52% of our children before COVID, over uh, 31 million people working for less than a living wage, less than a living wage of $15 minimum wage. Uh, waitresses working for $2.13 an hour plus tips. 
And this all existed before COVID. 250,000 people dying a year from poverty, 700 a day. And what we're saying is time for a moral reset in this country. It's time for a narrative shift, but you got to change the narrators. It's time for us to recognize that poor people also represent 30% of the electorate now. And it's time for a third reconstruction agenda. So we're having the mass poor people, low-wage workers assembly, moral march on Washington and to the polls, June 18th in Washington, D.C., uh, for this moral reset to give the stage to poor people from Appalachia to Alabama, from California to the Carolinas, along with religious leaders and, 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 and economists and lawyers who are going to say, you know, we're tired of the lies of scarcity. We're tired of the lies that we don't know how to do this. We can end poverty from the bottom up if we would engage a third reconstruction agenda. Can you speak to the first two reconstructions and why a third reconstruction is necessary and what it might be made of, what the details of it would be? You know, every reconstruction is about policy shifts. It's about policy shifts to undo the past deconstruction, the past denials. First reconstruction, 1868 to the 1890s, uh, is during that period of time, black and white people all over the South, particularly poor white people and former slaves, and freedmen came together. They changed voting laws to open up voting. They changed labor laws. They changed criminal justice laws. Uh, they changed the Constitution, put in place the 14th Amendment, equal protection under the law, 15th Amendment. Nobody can deny or abridge the right to vote. Now, that reconstruction was put down violently. Uh, there was a pushback. There was a group of people that said it was time to take back America again. They cheated in an election in 1877 to put a president in place who lost the popular vote but was given the Electoral College and then began to turn back to the Supreme Court. So it ended with riots and, 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 and literally uh, insurrections all over the country. Then the second Reconstruction is 1954 to 1968, beginning with the Brown versus Board of Education decision. During that time, we got Medicaid, Medicare. We got the Civil Rights Act of 64, the Voting Rights Act of 65. Fundamental policy shifts to try to address poverty. You got the war on poverty to address raci racism. Then it was killed and assassinated. Dr. King was murdered and so many others. The president was, was murdered. And then you get the Southern strategy, Richard Nixon, Pat Buchanan telling Richard Nixon, we have to engage in positive polarization at all times to keep poor black and white people away from each other, particularly voting uh, in, in the South. A third reconstruction really will be about finishing what didn't finish in the first two. It will be expanding and protecting voting rights. It would be guaranteeing income for those that those that are disabled, those that are, are hurting in our society. It would be guaranteeing a, a living wage as a minimum wage. It would be guaranteeing basic decent housing. It would be addressing the mass incarceration and the criminalization of black and brown and poor white communities. It would be addressing what we call systemic racism, poverty, ecological devastation, the denial of health care, the war economy, where we spend now 54 cents of every discretionary dollar on the war economy and less than 16 cents, Tom, on things that would really lift people up and would be a war on poverty rather than a war on the poor. And a third reconstruction would also address the false, distorted moral narrative of religious nationalism. We actually have a third reconstruction platform. You can find it at www.poorpeoplescampaign.org. And lastly, the economists have said 
that a moral agenda is an economically sound agenda, and that to not engage this is not only morally indefensible, constitutionally inconsistent, politically insensitive, but it's economically insane. It's economically insane to have 87 million people right now either uninsured or underinsured. It's economically insane not to play essential work of the living wage and make sure we have child income tax credit and earned income tax credit and those things that would actually lift the society and would actually grow the society. I'd like you to help me with a reality check on my perception of what's been going on here. My recollection, and I was actually quite politically active in the 60s, was that Martin Luther King was as much reaching out to white people as he was also speaking about the horrors of segregation and the whole crisis of black people in the United States at the time. In fact, when he was assassinated, he was trying to to organize sanitation workers, many of whom were white. He spoke about this Mm -hmm. frequently, in addition to speaking loudly against the Vietnam War and U.S. imperialism and other problems. But there's been this kind of Disneyfication of Dr. King. And and I see, frankly, I think in some of the the anti-critical race theory nonsense that's coming out of the Republican Party, also an attempt to to only show that Disney-fied part. So he was actually pushing poor people's issues you know, yes, race was a piece of this, obviously, but not, you know, at the forefront, at least in the, in the context of the Poor People's March, was like, let's deal with poverty, period. And, and I, my understanding is that that's what you're doing, too. And yet our media constantly covers you and the work you're doing and the Poor People's Campaign and what Martin Luther King did as if it was purely an issue around black people. It seems like if it was put together, and, and you have, if it was accurately reported, and this is my reality check, maybe I've got this wrong, if it was accurately reported, you'd be bringing along a lot of white people too. And we are, in spite of the things that people have done, we had planned to have this mass assembly in 2020, COVID hit, we went online, 2.7 million people showed up. You know, we're as welcome in Eastern Kentucky as we are in the Delta of Mississippi, but here's the reality check. And it's, and it's, and it's, and it's uh, uh, Dr. King talked about the triune eagle evil. They're not just in 67. He was talking about it in the first sermon, one of the first sermons he preached at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church when he talked about Paul's letter to the American Christian. And he talked about how the 1% was ruling over the 99%. But the period you're speaking of, he said, listen, you got to deal with racism, war, and militarism. We say today you have to deal with systemic racism, poverty, ecological devastation, denial of health care, the war economy, and the false modern religious nationalism. Now, on one side, even liberals try to reduce Dr. King down to one issue. I've challenged some, quote-unquote, African-Americans who do that. Statistically, say, for instance, voting rights. We said it was Jim Crow. This attack on voting rights today is not Jim Crow. It's James Crow Esquire. The reason it's not just Jim Crow is because if you look at the bills that are being passed, yes, it's going to hurt black people. But it's also going to hurt white people, disabled people, Native Americans, Asians. In fact, I think 55 million people, if the current bills that are out there were passed in every state, would lose the access to the polls they had in 2020. 55 million people, not 55 million black people. Secondly, Dr. King would never have separated voting rights from economic justice. So, for instance, when Joe Manchin voted to block living wages in the in the American Rescue Plan. Civil rights leaders, labor leaders, everybody should have been calling that what it was, a race vote and a class vote. Why race? Because one vote blocked 41% of African Americans from lifting out of poverty and low wealth, but it also blocked 31 million Americans 
from being listed out of poverty, the majority of which are white. Because in this country, of the 140 million poor and low-wealth people, 66 million are white, 26 million are black. What we need is a unification. In 1965, at the end of the Montgomery March, Dr. King said that what caused the segregated society and the voter suppression was not just a hatred of people's skin color. It was the fear of the aristocracy, the bourbon class, he called it, of, of the masses of Negro people and the masses of poor white people coming together, forming a political bloc that would fundamentally shift the economic architecture of the nation. And it started in the first Reconstruction, because the fear in the South was always that coalition, in fact, the fear in the country. And so what we're saying, Tom, you're exactly right, is that there's time for a moral fusion movement, an interrelational movement that addresses these interlocking injustices. You can't separate them out. So if you're white and you're concerned about economics, you have to be concerned about racist voter suppression. If you're concerned about racist voter suppression, you need to understand how it connects to uh, the denial of other progressive policies. And I actually get bothered quite a bit. My co-chair is white. Uh, you know, I happen to be African-American. Our movement is about all five of these things we live. And sometimes, Tom, in the media, they'll say, well, which one is the most important? And I say, all of them, mm. because all of them interrelate. And they'll say, well, you're a civil rights leader. I said, we're moral leaders. We're religious and moral leaders, human rights leaders who are trying to say that the people who make up that 140 million poor and low wealth in this country, it's time for them to come together. Because right now in this country, Tom, last point, we did a study, 15 states, 15 so-called battleground states, if anywhere between 1% and 25% of poor and low-wealth people would vote around an agenda, not black people, but poor, low-wealth, they could fundamentally decide who sits in the presidency. There you go. There you go. Dr. Barber, we're, we're, we're out of time, but you're absolutely right. It's brilliant. Thank you so much for dropping by today. Uh, Reverend God William Barber. Join us on June 18th. Yes. Thank right. you. Thank you. And bless you, too. BreachRepairers.org and PoorPeople'sCampaign.org. We'll be right back. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, 
There's joy in every journey. Two quick stories, and then I'll pick up your phone calls. Uh, the first is just following up on my rant that, you know, basically what the Republicans are doing is whipping the horse, right? And, and what Democrats are doing is holding a carrot in front of the horse, a carrot that eventually the horse can get, right? It's the moving again, away from pain versus moving toward pleasure principle. And to, to give you a concrete example, during the break, I checked my email and I got an email from the America First Policy Institute. This is a new think tank that is building on, on Donald Trump. He's got a, I believe he has a piece of it because they're constantly referring to him. Although, who knows? I mean, sometimes, you know, sometimes people just use Trump's memes. And uh, so, I, you know, I, I don't know the details, but it's called the American First Policy Institute. AmericaFirstPolicy.com, I think, is the website. And it lists, it says, you know, welcome to America, to America First Agenda from the America First Policy Institute, blah de blah, blah Crafting policy, counseling policymakers, amplifying activists, battling the media, and doing everything we can to build an America, blah de blah So here are the issues. They said, learn more about the latest issues. And you tell me, are these examples of the moving toward pleasure? We're going to make a, uh, you know, we're going to make your life better. Or are these examples of, oh my God, look out, the Democrats are, you know, that kind of thing. Number one, how the Biden administration's inflation tax continues to take a bite out of American paychecks. So this is going to be a big thing. You know, look out, inflation is coming. Uh, number two, uh, Biden's promise to nominate a black woman would be illegal in any other setting. <gasps> Biden said he's going to nominate a black woman the same way Reagan said he was going to nominate a woman woman. You know, obviously a white woman, but still, well, we can't have that. That's, uh, again, moving away from pain. You know, in other words, the freak out. Number three, putting America first requires resisting China's systemic racism. Again, I, you know, I, I, you could argue that this has some kind of a moral tint to it, but I guarantee you it's... You know, particularly after Donald Trump got owned by China. Uh, Paul Krugman was pointing this out yesterday in the New York Times. China had promised Donald Trump that they would buy $200 billion more of American goods, remember, because we had a trade deficit with them. <laughs> they didn't buy any of it. None. They just, you know, they stroked him. They said, oh, yeah, Donald, we'll pat you on the head. Yeah, we'll say to you. And, uh, and then Americans were returning to work as Biden administration work disincentives expire, but jobs remain over $7 million, million below the trend. In other words, it's all, oh my God, here's what's bad with America. They're doing the same thing that Mitch McConnell said in my opening rant from HartmanReport.com, you know, where I said, you know, Mitch McConnell just basically came out and said, we don't have a policy to run on. We're going to run on trashing Democrats. That's it. So there's that. Number one. Number two, did you know, and you probably do if you've been paying attention to the news, it's been all over the mainstream media. It's not showing up on Fox News. It's not showing up on conservative media, interestingly. But 40% uh, of the mail-in ballot requests in Houston, a city with a sizable black and Hispanic population, and a lot of Democrats, 40% have been turned down. It's actually 38% is the exact number. 2.4 million voters, 38% of the people who are applying for mail-in ballots are being told, no, sorry. 
Because, see, you got to have this number. The number is either the last four digits of your social or it's your driver's license number. But here's the catch. When you register to vote, you have to give one of those two numbers. When you vote now, you have to remember which number they gave them, you gave them, and write it down correctly on your, on your, on your ballot or on your application for a mail-in ballot. And if you fail to do that, or on, on your mail-in ballot when you send it in, when you send in your vote, if you fail to get it right, your vote doesn't get counted. So, you know, one of the more famous stories, the one that I heard last night on TV, was that uh, there was this woman who's been voting in, in Dallas for, or in Houston for, or in Texas, I don't recall the city, frankly, for over 40 years. And when she registered to vote, she gave him her driver's license number and they wrote it down. But her driver's license number has changed. She still has a driver's license in Texas, but it's not the same number. I mean, have you ever had your driver's license renewed? Sometimes they give you a new number, particularly if you move out of state or you move from city to city or whatever. I mean, if there's any significant change, you might get a whole new driver's license number. So when she put down her driver's license number, knowing that she had used her driver's license number 40 years earlier when she registered, they threw out her vote. Said, sorry, wrong number. It's amazing. They also have, in addition to this, they have these new ID requirements. They put a ban on drive-through voting, which was very popular during the pandemic. Might not be such a big deal as, you know, the hysteria, uh, and I don't mean that in the pejorative sense. The concern, shall we say, around COVID is diminishing over time. Um, I'm guessing that you're actually going to see people show up to vote by November, unless, unless a new evil variant comes along. You'll recall last summer we were, you know, the Biden administration in July came out and, hey, it's, it's COVID Freedom Day. And then, bang, Omicron hit us in what, August, September? And uh, it was, you know, back hiding under the tables again. So we'll see. But a ban on drive-through voting, and uh, they're limiting the individual counties. Say you're in a county that has seen population growth. You want to add more machines? You want to add places to vote? Not going to happen. Texas also only allows mail-in voting. Now, now the, the one area where this gets really interesting is, you know, the, the over 65 crowd is strongly Republican, always, you know, uh, largely always has been. Um, Winston Churchill once made a joke about as you get older and wealthier, you become more conservative. And there's some truth to that. And so when I first looked at what Texas was doing to make it almost impossible to do a mail-in vote, I thought, you know, they're going to screw themselves. They got all these older voters, uh, particularly in the rural areas, who vote by mail. And, you know, are you're going to exclude them? Well, they've waived all this nonsense for people over 65. If you're on Social Security or Medicare in Texas, you can still vote by mail, no problem. They make it easy for you. So here we go, right? Here we go. As the Texas uh, Tribune explained, if you have a defective ballot, if you can't remember your magic number, and they tell you that in time for you to do something about it, which is another, another big uh, variable, you must visit an elections office in person to correct the issue. This is what it says on, on the, in the Texas Tribune. And then they go on to say, obviously, the main concern 
is that people that receive ballots by mail may not have the ability to come to the clerk's office. After all, the people who are requesting mail-in ballots may be disabled, they may be elderly, they may be immune compromised and they're not willing to expose themselves to COVID. They may have disabilities. This, this Senate Bill 1 is the name of this law, this Texas law. The Brennan Center for Justice says that 19 states now, uh, last year, 19 states passed 34 laws restricting ballot access. We are now in the second month of this year. And so far, 250 pieces of legislation have been introduced or pre-filed in 27 states to limit Americans' right to vote. We need a Elections Canada kind of system. We need a national system that is completely nonpartisan, cannot be partisanally manipulated, that is just there to make it easy for everybody to vote. And frankly, I think we need national mail-in voting. We've had it for over 20 years here in Oregon, and it is wonderful. You're automatically registered to vote when you get your driver's license or pretty much anything else that has to do with the government. It comes in the mail a few weeks before the election. You have plenty of time to fill it out. It's easy. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And that's why Republicans want to ban it, because it's easy. And we have one of the highest voter turnouts in the nation because we have nation because we have statewide mail-in balloting. And uh, I wanted I just wanted to flag this for you. This is something you probably have not heard about on MSNBC or CNN or in the mainstream media because by and large it's being ignored because it's really not a big deal. But the right wing is absolutely screaming hysterical about this. And Donald Trump called for the death of Hillary Clinton or people on her campaign last Friday uh, as a consequence of this. Now, John Durham is this right-wing lawyer that Donald Trump gave a, uh, a job of being a special prosecutor, a, a special counsel is his title. And he was supposed to look into who were the nefarious actors who were claiming that Donald Trump had cut a deal with or was trying to cut a deal with Russians or Russian oligarchs or the government or whatever back in 2015, 2016 to become president. And the, the predicating assumption was that there's absolutely no there there and people made this thing up and who are those terrible people we need to, we need to find them. And Durham has not, you know, outside of uh, trying to prosecute one lawyer for not being honest about how he learned about, you know, with the FBI about how he learned about some detail of this, uh, Durham has not found any evidence. He's not found any smoking guns. He's not found anything. But uh, he did make a court filing last week. And because it was a filing in court, the right wing is taking it like, oh, my God, this is a court filing. This must be real. And it was a court filing saying that Michael Sussman, who is a lawyer, uh, former lawyer with the Clinton campaign, um, who is uh, basically defending this, I guess, that he, should, that he has a conflict of interest with the attorneys. Because Durham claims that he, quote, repeatedly billed the Clinton campaign, end quote, for his work on the Russian bank allegations. So this is like a, an, a claim made three steps removed. Durham is saying that this guy, this lawyer, billed the Clintons, and that is proof that somebody was spying on Donald Trump and that the people who were spying on Donald Trump were being paid for by the Clinton campaign. Now, it may be true, 
But Durham doesn't offer evidence of that. He simply makes that claim. But the right wing has just gone nuts with this. And by the way, if it is true, hey, that's politics. You can hire anybody you want to try to snoop on anybody else. It becomes illegal when their snooping becomes illegal. And again, we've seen no evidence of that either. But Donald Trump, like I said, is calling for the death penalty for Hillary Clinton and people on her campaign, which is just like this is this is the kind of rhetoric that tears countries apart. But when you hear from your right wing friends and neighbors that, oh, my God, John Durham has proved that that the there was no there there to the Trump Russia thing and blood. No, not at all. All he's saying is that one of Clinton's lawyers billed the Clinton campaign for investigating the link between Trump and Russia. Well, duh. I mean, you know, if your opponent, if you thought your opponent, or if you knew that your opponent was meeting with, you know, agents of a foreign government and trying to solicit their help to win an election, and Trump was not bashful about this. By the way, we're in the break, Sean. Uh, Trump was not bashful about this. Wouldn't you hire somebody to check it out? So I'm just just putting that on your radar screen so you know, because by and large, it's a story that's all over right-wing media and being largely ignored by everybody else, because it's not really that big a deal. We'll be back with your calls. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Dismantling Global White Privilege, the subtitle Equity for a Post-Western World. It's by Chandran Nair, who is the founder and CEO of the Global Institute for Tomorrow. This is from the preface. Chandran Nair, by the way, was born in India. He's going to reference that in a moment. The title, White Privilege, it's woven into the fabric of globalization. I've been very fortunate to have had the opportunity to live and work in different parts of the world, thereby experiencing the people and cultures of many countries. I was also lucky to have been born in one of the most racially and religiously diverse countries in the world. This was a most enriching gift and gave me an early sense of living with diversity and not feeling threatened by people of other races and religions. Thus, I had little fear of other people and no sense of superiority. But it might also be the case that because my formative years were spent in a former British colony, I was highly attuned to how white people acquired special status and privileges wherever they went in the non-Western world. I was struck by how they seemed to view themselves as superior to others and leverage this in many subtle ways for their own economic benefit and social privilege. This book is a result of the early awareness and subsequent search for answers. The impacts of white privilege are much more profound and insidious than commonly understood. White privilege needs to be better studied by the younger generations across the world. Too many people, especially non-whites, just accept it as the norm and even seek whiteness, a phenomena that I will describe in this book. White privilege needs to be understood beyond the descriptions in history books and the horrors of colonization, the nature of imperialism, and the impression of black people in the U.S., and beyond even current-day liberal explanations and theories about Western hegemony. 
Many books have been written on these topics, and most look back to document events and actions of great injustice that can no longer be denied. But not enough books have entered the mainstream in examining how the past is being actively preserved today through various mechanisms for the same economic objectives that triggered colonization and imperialism. Greater awareness is needed if this process is to be reversed and a more just world created in the coming post-Western world. Most versions of history have been written by Western historians, and while some have been honest in their pursuit of the truth, the majority have been selective in narrating history, absolving the West of many of the horrors of its past. What is common is the framing of these atrocities as events in the distant past, and the active cultivation by Western governments, historians, and the media that the enlightened West of today has now learned its lessons, turning its societies into the most progressive in the world. This book will argue that this is a lie, and that the aim of dominating the world remains the principal objective of Western powers, often working in tandem through strategic economic and military alliances. The sharp rise of white supremacy in the United States in the last few years with links to a wider fear of other nations and races, present in Europe now too, should make this crystal clear to anyone in doubt. There is no need to reject the notion that what we experience and see today with regard to Western superiority is a legacy of history and is on its way out. This too is a lie, as the preservation of white privilege is an active and ongoing process. It is aided and abetted by many, including global corporations, the media, and leading international institutions, despite pronouncements about the fight for a fairer and more just world. Much of the current discourse on race, Western power, and white supremacy does not, in my view, fully explain how white privilege works globally. The current discourse in the West in popular literature and media commentary, aside from academia, does not honestly explore how it is actively promoted and is spreading across the world despite all the posturing about fighting white racism. This book will argue that the people and institutions that support and in fact actively promote white supremacy and privilege are not, as is often suggested, delusional, which downplays how mainstream they really are. And they simply cannot be dismissed as racists. White supremacists do not simply have an assertion of superiority. They have an entrenched belief in superiority, intermingled with strongly held religious convictions owned over centuries, extended to large segments of the global white population, even if they publicly reject such labels. This book seeks to show that white privilege is in fact centuries old, has been re-engineered for the modern world, and extends well beyond the confines of the historical and current socioeconomic conditions that catalyze the creations of the Black Lives Matter movement in the U.S., which can be viewed as the tip of the iceberg of the often unrecognized and unseen larger scale features of global white supremacy. Why? Because it is now woven into the very fabric of globalization, lurking in its structure. The victims do not see the perpetrators as delusional, but instead as those who project power with intent and use it ruthlessly to preserve their economic interests, even through violence. When living in Africa, I came into close contact with the many facets of white privilege and superiority by witnessing the brutality of the apartheid system in South Africa and got involved in supporting the struggle against its injustices. The book is Dismantling Global White Privilege by Chandran Nair.
So is the Republican Party going to get away with it? Have I miss or over uh, characterized or emphasized the, the racism that seems to be, at least to me, animating the GOP? I, it, it just seems like there's really nothing left. Do you think this is going to continue to work for them? How long can they can they pull this off? How can how long? You know, I mean, just even in subtle ways, you know, like yesterday I did that rant about how they were talking there. All the Republicans were talking about uh, the Biden administration wants to give out crack pipes. Crack, of course, being urban, right, uh, a.k.a. black. I I am beginning to think and by beginning i mean you know i've been seeing this trend now i think over the last year basically kind of d- during the 4 years of trump's presidency i was increasingly convinced that you know racism was going to become the new big thing in america i mean not that it's ever been gone away or been the small thing but you know just openly promoting racism like trump did yeah not even dog whistle you know s whole countries and and, uh, you know, uh, Mexicans are rapists and all this kind of stuff. That, and, you know, caravans are coming, oh my God. Uh, that this was going to become the new kind of major recruiting tool for the Republican Party. I'm wondering now if it's, and, and, and I get it, you know, for the Republican base, it probably is and will be for a long, long time. This is, this is who they are. This is what they are. I mean, just, you know, look at any picture of the Republican caucus. Uh, in the House, look in the individual states at, re- at Republicans who are elected. Uh, people of color are few and far between. And when you find them, they, they typically are doing very well, shall we say, financially. And, and you know, the, the party is taking good care of them. But um, I would question their, their loyalty to the values, ethics, and principles of the Republican Party, or frankly, any Republican's values or principles because they're so obviously racist. But is this going to work? Or is the GOP going to go to something else? What do you think is going to be the major issue as we go into the fall? I think crime is going to be huge, but I think that's also going to be another avatar for racism. I think that, you know, control of our schools is going to be huge, but that's another avatar or stand in for racism. The whole, you know, critical race theory, I mean, they're not even trying to diminish it or hide it in any way. Even their policies on health care, their policies on welfare, their policies on the social safety net very often have a racial kind of subcomponent to them, as I laid out in the first third of my book, The Hidden History of American Healthcare. So, you know, where does this go? How does this play out? Picking up your phone calls, Mark in Morgantown, West Virginia. Hey, Mark, what's on your mind today? Hey, I was wondering if you were aware of a story about a West Virginia state delegate named Daniel Walker? Not right off the top of my head. Okay, well, what happened on back on February 1st, she received an email from one of the local chapters of West Virginians for Life. And the email had a picture of a guy in full Klan's outfit, you know, all the robes and hood and everything. And it said, uh, the message was, uh, the idiot featured in this picture below is an ally of yours and holds the same beliefs that you do, that the killing of children who look like you is a good thing. 
So Danielle Walker, by the way, is the only female black delegate in West Virginia. Wow. So the guy has since resigned, and she's filed a civil lawsuit. That's cool. I mean, That's how cool. do you, how can you ever think that sending a picture of a Klansman to a black person in today's America is appropriate? Yeah, at the very least. The fact that she's the only black elected female delegate to uh, West Virginia, although West Virginia is a largely white state, but still, I mean, you know, so much for racial diversity. Mark, thanks for that story. I did, I did not know that, and it just kind of adds to the, to the whole thing. Thank you very much. Bob in Portland. Hey, Bob, what's on your mind today? Well, I was listening to your rant on racism, and I was just reading last night the speech that Gouverneur Morris gave in the uh, convention in 18, uh, 1787. Okay, so let me just set this up for people who don't know who Gouverneur sure. Morris was. He, he was the author of the preamble to the Constitution. He was the New York delegate to the Constitutional Convention. He was anti-slavery and a very, very close friend, probably one of the closest friends of a number of the other founders, some of whom were slaveholders like Jefferson and Madison, but one of the most highly regarded uh, men there. So back to you, Bob. Yeah, and he really, they brought up this three-fifths proposal for representation that five blacks or five Negroes, as they called them then, would be counted as three white men. But Morris got up and he just blasted them. And the way he blasted them is two things you've been mentioning. One was about the economy and the difference between the northern states and how prosperous they were in comparison to how the pleaded the southern states were and the other was fear that the primary reason that uh uh it's been it was going on for ever since the 1700s but it's such an impressive speech and what it did was it knocked the whole idea uh morris did not want the word slave in the constitution at all and he refused to let it get in there yeah even though they tried to sneak it in under another way uh, of disguising it. But uh, of course he, he won the argument and they didn't, they didn't get to count uh, representation that way. Yeah, it was all about free labor. In fact, you know, there was a movement back in the, in, in the first decade of the 2000s to call conservatives free labor conservatives or cheap labor conservatives. And basically every single Republican policy you can name boils down to cheap labor. And, and I, would, yeah. I would overlay this, this racial filter on that and say, you know, cheap labor, and in particular, cheap, la- cheap minority labor, whether it's black or Hispanic. And this is what they're all about. Bob, I gotta move along, but thank you for the call. It was a, that was a good one. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 